Welcome to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, Greg and I field listener questions about how the myonuclear domain theory relates to hypertrophy, sodium bicarbonate supplementation, using bands for hypertrophy training, and more. In addition, I defend my honor, my integrity, and my original review of the Game Changers movie in response to some very harsh criticism. If you want your questions answered on a future episode, you can go to tiny.cc slash sbsqa to submit those questions. As always, thank you for listening and enjoy the show. Welcome back to another Q&A episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. We have a lot of good questions today, so we are going to dive right into it. So the first question is for Greg. It is from a user whose name is Land Ho. The question is, I would love to hear Greg's take on the current state of the literature regarding the myonuclear domain theory and hypertrophy. It seems like there's some new evidence that myonuclei accretion may not necessarily precede hypertrophy. I would also love to hear Greg's updated recommend recommendations from the Grow Like a Newbie article that he wrote back in 2015. Yeah, so to to start off with answering this question... Um, I'd recommend at least going back and checking out the article I wrote back in 2015. Title is Grow Like a New Lifter Again. It is probably the most controversial article that I've written for the site. Uh, A lot of people read it and a lot of people got upset about it. I think because I used a clickbait title and they just purely assessed the article on those grounds instead of like actually reading it closely, which, you know, to be fair. I understand that's the game you play when you go with clickbait titles. Um, but anyway, the the kernel of that article, uh, just to very, very briefly summarize it, is that your muscles are fairly unique as cells in your body in that most of your cells only have one nucleus and your muscle fibers are just very large individual cells that have multiple nuclei. Um, I know that like maybe one of the larger immune cells also has multiple nuclei, uh, and maybe like one or two other cell types, but your, your muscle fibers are one of the very, very few cells in your body that is multinucleated. And so myonuclear domain theory is the idea that essentially how large a muscle fiber can get is at least to some degree constrained by the number of myonuclei it has. That there is essentially each myonuclei can have a given domain, um, and it essentially works like a Wi-Fi router within that domain, where for a given, basically, amount of area surrounding that uh, nucleus, that that nucleus can, you know, control the goings-on in the cell, Um, can code for the proteins needed to maintain that given volume of sarcoplasm, and that if the muscle fiber expands too much and, like, the size of the muscle fiber got larger than its number of myonuclei could kind of support and signal and create proteins for, um, then essentially things would start breaking down and functioning less efficiently, and therefore that seems to be pretty constrained, where... Uh, past a given point for muscle fibers to continue growing, they need to keep adding more myonuclei so that the myonuclear domains don't get too large. And so what I argued in the article is uh, something that's 
a slight obsession of mine, which is a frustrating obsession because there's not much research on it one way or another, um, is basically the question of why we stop growing in the first place. Like, you know, we know if you're a new lifter, you lift weights, you get bigger, you get a little bit more advanced, you keep lifting weights, you keep getting bigger, but at a slower rate. And then it seems like for, you know, pretty much everyone, um, eventually you reach a point where, like, you just can't add more muscle, or you're adding muscle at such a slow rate that it's it's basically imperceptible. And so the question is, like, mechanistically, why does that occur? And so I argue in the article that myonuclei are um, a prime candidate for that. So we know that essentially early on in the training process, uh, lifters accrue more myonuclei from satellite cells. The satellite cells donate their nucleus to the muscle fiber. You gain more myonuclei. And and that seems to be one of the factors uh, underpinning why new lifters can grow so quickly. Uh, Another factor underpinning it is, you know, if you're untrained, just walking around, you are probably below your maximum myonuclear domain limit. So there's a fair amount that your muscle fibers can grow before they actually hit that myonuclear domain limit. Um, And so those factors probably contribute to new lifters being able to grow pretty quickly. And there's some evidence that suggests that more advanced lifters have a, a more difficult time adding more myonuclei, or at least that that process is progressing um, substantially slower. And one of the reasons why is that uh, the details are still pretty murky, but it seems like myonuclear addition is at least in to some degree related to muscle damage, that essentially the satellite cells are activated in response to um, some level of trauma within the muscle, and kind of go there to work on repairing uh, that trauma in the muscle, and at some some point in the process, donate their myonuclei. Uh, and so, you know, the, the idea I put forth in the article is, you know, maybe one of the reasons people eventually stop growing, or at least start growing at a incredibly slow pace, is you have, uh, you know, all of the things going on with the repeated bout effect that help dramatically reduce the amount of muscle damage you experience in response to training. And so in the article, I was basically speculating that, you know, maybe you get more advanced, you stop getting robust muscle damage. um, So maybe you can try some strategies to ramp up muscle damage again, and that could help you add more myonuclei, which could then help you grow more. Um, And oh, and, and one additional thing to note as well is that once you add like once you gain more myonuclei, they seem to basically be there forever. Um, there's some research in uh, like in animals and who have like had some pretty extreme things done to them, and I believe in humans after spinal cord injuries, uh, indicating that essentially if all uh, neural activity to a muscle ceases, as that muscle atrophies, it will eventually start losing myonuclei. But, you know, if you go to the gym and train for three years and then take six months off, say, um, you probably will have the same amount of myonuclei in your muscles after that six months off as you did at the end of those three years of training. Um, You'll lose a lot of muscle size, but that's going to come from muscle proteins, not from uh, losing myonuclei themselves. 
And that's probably one of the things at least partially underpinning the phenomenon of muscle memory. Um, you know, essentially, if it took you five years to build X amount of muscle, you stop training for a while, you lose all of that muscle. When you start training again, it takes way less than five years to get that previously built muscle back. Uh, and it's thought that the retention of myonuclei kind of underpin that. So anyway, those are those are some of the things I talked about in the article. And again, the, the grow like a new lifter headline referred to um, potentially trying to do things to take time off or resensitize yourself to muscle damage to maybe then be able to more efficiently fuse more myonuclei, possibly helping you get over a plateau. Um, and so I feel like that's a lot of backstory uh, and certainly longer than I meant to go. <laughs> but it, it was interesting though. Sure, hopefully. Yeah. Uh, so the question is asking, like some more research has come out since 2015, um, not necessarily refuting myonuclear domain theory, but essentially up to that point, there wasn't a ton of research, but what was there painted a pretty clear picture. Um, and there has been some some subsequent research come out that does muddy the water a little bit. So to, to answer this actual question, now that the background's out of the way, first thing I'd say is listen to the podcast we did where we interviewed Alex Coliari-Turner. Um, this is what he actually studies, and we got into this during that interview uh, quite a bit. So for a more detailed answer, check out that interview. Um, and what I would say just kind of briefly to answer this question is that I'm, I'm less confident in the ideas now than I was when I published the article. Um, but when I published the article originally, I made clear that I was kind of putting forth a hypothesis rather than stating like, this is exactly how everything is and this is exactly how it will work if you implement these things into your training. And I think when I published it, I was maybe like 80% confident that what I was saying would work. And now I'm more like 60% confident. So I still think I still think odds are better than not that the information in that article is good, but I am a little bit less confident in it. Um, one thing I will say is that the research that's come out looking at myonuclear domain theory recently um, is mostly looking at some of those variables in like untrained lifters or untrained animals who begin training. And what I was speculating about in the article was more about uh, kind of what what would happen with more advanced lifters who have plateaued pretty hard um, as far as hypertrophy goes. So I don't necessarily know that the, the research that's come out that has questioned some of the myonuclear domain stuff, I don't necessarily know how relevant it is to the ideas that I was putting forth in that article. Um, but yeah, I, I can certainly admit that the state of the research is uh, a little bit more equivocal now than it was back in 2015. I think that's important though. I, I, there are a lot of people that do some writing in the fitness industry that have, it seems like they, they feel like you're not allowed to kind of like build upon what we know and put forth an idea. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It, takes a lot of work and a lot of guts to be like yeah I'm, I'm gonna hit publish on this you know what i mean so um i i think it's cool that you were willing to put that article out and this was before we probably didn't even know each other back then did we i think we'd had like two email exchanges about jts articles but that yeah. was it 
But that, that's one of the things that even in the early days that I enjoyed about Stronger by Science and the, the writing that you were doing, was that Stronger by Science back then or was it? Uh, I think it, strength theory, it was right? definitely still strength theory. Yeah. But in any case, it, it's always nice when you see somebody who's and there's there's several people in fitness that's that do this. But when you see someone who's like, yeah, I'm not sure about this, but kind of makes sense to me. What do you think? You know? Yeah, I, I think one of the reasons it was misinterpreted is not many people write stuff like that. Um, and so, you know, I mean, 90% of the articles I write are, you know, here's a lot of research about something. There's a lot of anecdotes to back it up. We're incredibly confident that this is the case and will be useful for you. Um, I mean, I don't write many articles that are speculative. Very few people write articles that are... I, I think a lot of people write articles that should be presented as speculative, <laughs> but they still present them as if it's a sure thing. Um, but yeah, I, I tried to make clear in that article that it was you know, just putting forth a hypothesis and it was slightly speculative. And I think a lot of people just completely miss that. Yeah, you, you do get some fitness articles that are contrarian, right? Where they're going to say, I, everyone holds this belief to be true, but I'm going to push back on that. Mm -hmm. But it, it is still usually in areas where there is a decent amount of direct research or at least nearly direct research they can draw from and say, yeah. everyone says this study says that, but I think it says something else. Um, but very few where you're just really drawing from some basic physiology and speculating so it, it certainly is a, a daring maneuver to pull off yeah and and one thing that i'll note is uh if you would like a full version about how i feel about this particular topic and just things that limit muscle growth in general um you should buy tickets to the inland empire fitness conference uh, this is what I'm going to be talking about there, not just like myonuclear domain theory, but more generally the question of what can we surmise eventually limits muscle growth. So instead of just speculating about one potential mechanism, I'm going to be speculating about a bunch of them. Uh, and if you're hearing this right now, just know nothing I say in that talk is meant to be construed as this is exactly what's happening. It's more just like, you know, let's sit here for an hour and uh, speculate and, you know, hope maybe be able to draw some tentative conclusions. But I, it, it will definitely be the weirdest talk I've ever done. <laughs> and hopefully it'll be fun. Okay, so I said some nice things about you. So now I feel comfortable asking you this. In that talk, what percentage of your content do you expect you'll get through before they ask you to stop talking because time is up? Well, there's two questions here. One is, how much will I get through before they ask me to stop? And the second is, how much will I get through before I actually stop? Yeah. Uh, first first one's like 70%. Second one's 110. <laughs> okay. That makes sense. No, so... I, I mean, unless they have people who are strong enough to, to physically drag me off the stage. They might. It's going down. Yeah. So that's a really fun event. I spoke at it last year. Um, it's in Spokane, I assume, again, right? I think so, yeah. yeah. Um, very cool venue. Spokane's a fun town. I liked it. I didn't get to stay too long, but that, that's a really fun event. A lot of good people attend it. A lot of good people speak at it. Very good people run it. So definitely be sure to check that one out. Oh, and uh, now that I think about it, I'm pretty sure that's what I'm going to be talking about at... Um... Oh, man. I should remember names. The the one in Australia. 
Isn't it the ultimate evidence-based conference? That's it, UEBC. Um, I was going to say JPS, but those are the people putting it on. Um, I assume that there's not going to be that much crossover attendance uh, between Australia and Spokane. I generally try to only like, I generally only try to do talks like two or three times uh, because I know that, I know a lot of people basically have like four talks they do and they do them for like 10 years in a row. And so the first time you hear him speak, it's like, oh, that was cool. And the second time you're like, oh, that's like the same talk as last year with maybe one extra slide. Uh, So I very strongly try not to do that. Um, These very well may be the only two times I give this particular talk. So if you are either, you know, somewhere in near the West Coast of the U.S. or Australia, uh, check it out. Okay, let's uh, let's move on. Let's do it. We have a question for Eric from Sav. Uh, question is, sodium bicarbonate has recently received high levels of press due to its proposed ability to limit fatigue, thus allowing for increased effort during high-intensity interval training. What are your thoughts on this for high-intensity interval training and lactic threshold-type workouts? Yeah, so um, sodium bicarbonate, um, you know, it is one of those supplements, uh, one of the few that you can say like, okay, we've got a decent body of literature where this at least is fairly reliably improving some type of exercise. Now, for resistance training, the the evidence isn't very strong, but for sprint-type training, I think it is quite strong. Um, Now, what what sodium bicarbonate is doing is... Uh, bicarbonate is, is our main extracellular buffering system um, for acidity. So when, when we're doing really high intensity exercise, we generate all these protons. The, the local metabolic environment becomes quite acidic and the pH drops. And we have to have some way of basically clearing that out uh, and uh, what's the word? Buffering that acidity. So um, what happens is, you know, we'll give the sodium bicarbonate in an effective dose People will do some sprint work. They're able to accommodate that increase in the production of protons more effectively. So even though they're doing a similar amount of work, they are creating a less uh, a less acidic local environment, metabolically speaking. And so what that allows them to do in many cases is achieve just a little bit, a little, a slightly higher work output during that particular sprint workout. Okay, so essentially what we're doing here is because sodium bicarbonate is a very effective extracellular buffer, we're shifting that whole lactate threshold upward. So to achieve a similar uh, level of acidosis, more work is ultimately performed. So for many different types of sprint-related outcomes, we do have research indicating that Properly dosed sodium bicarbonate will enhance sprint performance uh, to some extent, but there are some potential downsides or at least shortcomings. Um, One potential shortcoming is that sodium bicarbonate, if you use it consistently, it may not necessarily enhance the adaptations to your sprint type training. So there was a study that uh, Mike Zordos covered in mass. Uh, The study was by Siegler and colleagues in 2018. And they were looking at sodium bicarbonate, they looked at some acute effects, and then they looked at kind of chronic training adaptations. Um, What they found is that bicarb, sodium bicarbonate, certainly it reliably induces acute alkalosis. It it kind of increases the pH of the blood to a a small but physiologically meaningful extent. Um, Now, they found that 
repeated use, kind of consistent use throughout a training program didn't seem to enhance training adaptations. They were looking at like leg extension, one rep max, and a bunch of like very mechanistic torque-related variables of the uh, knee extensors. However, um, even the acute effects in that study, based on the outcomes they chose, weren't particularly impressive. Um, but but the general, my general reservations when it comes to using sodium bicarb as you know a strategy you're going to lean on to promote training adaptations is, I think I think it's it's quite likely that the the acidosis and the general metabolic chaos, all those metabolites that are generated during really high intensity interval training, they're, they're almost certainly driving adaptations to some extent when we're talking about bolstering that anaerobic uh, metabolic system. So, you know, you can shift the lactate threshold upward. And certainly in the short term, you're probably going to be able to achieve more work in a really fatiguing maximal sprint task. Um, but you're probably, when we look at it as a training aid for training adaptations, you're probably just putting yourself in a position where you have to do more work to elicit the same stimulus for those metabolic uh, adaptations that should bolster your ability to sprint over time. Now, I, I don't think, I, I don't have any reason to believe that it would inhibit your adaptations to training. So we do see something like that when it comes to antioxidants, right? So with really high dose like vitamin C and E, for example, especially vitamin C, there have been studies where they say, oh, so when we do this really challenging exercise, there's all this oxidative stress that might contribute to, you know, the residual uh, fatigue and soreness and muscle damage and all that stuff. What if we do really high doses of antioxidants before training to try to uh, mitigate the production of all those, uh, all that oxidative stress. And what they find is with really high dose vitamin C, they can certainly uh, attenuate the acute production of, of oxidative stress. Um, however, what they found out was that oxidative stress does seem to play an important role in promoting training adaptations to the training bout. So there are studies showing that in young, healthy people um, who are who generally don't have a bunch of oxidative stress at baseline, it's actually a little bit counterproductive. I don't expect that that's the case for sodium bicarbonate, but I think a lot of people are under the impression if I use sodium bicarbonate before training, I shift my lactate threshold, um, I get a little bit more work done in my training session, that is going to create you know, uh, proportional improvements in my adaptations to this program when it comes to my sprinting capacity. And I'm a little bit skeptical that that's the case. I, I don't think it's going to hinder adaptations, but if there is uh, an increase in training adaptations, I don't think it's going to be as big as people expect it to be. And it certainly won't be in proportion to the short-term, uh, you know, single-dose acute effect that we see with sodium bicarbonate and performance. I think the more general point is certainly a very important one where there's so much acute research about things that you know, maybe improve performance during a single exercise session or maybe slightly improve recovery. And a lot of times when you read those studies, they'll say like, well, this improved acute performance. We know that, you know, this proxy of workload for acute performance is associated with this beneficial training outcome. So since this improved this given proxy, we think it very well may improve training outcomes as well. And then when those studies get picked up in the blogosphere and social media, they'll say, well, you know, this was just a single session. 
and it improved performance within that single session. But, you know, it's pretty clear that everyone should be doing this or taking the supplement because, you know, if you're getting three extra reps per set, that has to mean more strength gains, more muscle growth over time. And and the thing is, like, that line of thinking doesn't have a strong track record. Um, it worked out really well for creatine, even though creatine promotes hypertrophy via other mechanisms other than just improving acute performance. Um, but yeah, you could say that that idea hit once, but uh, hasn't really seemed to do that that well for high-dose antioxidants. Yeah, it improves um, some markers of recovery uh, via limiting oxidative stress. So, you know, maybe volume in a week could be higher, but it's also mechanistically, like, inhibiting anabolic signaling, so it actually decreases muscle growth. Similar with cold water immersion, um, that tends to pretty reliably improve recovery as well, also limits muscle growth. Uh, Same thing with NSAIDs, that improves recovery from training, limits muscle growth. Uh, Other things that have been shown to improve acute training performance either just don't have much data on them or the data is pretty equivocal. Uh, Isn't there one longitudinal study on um, citrulline now? There is, but it's got some pretty big limitations. That's what I thought. So not much there. Uh, Caffeine acutely improves performance, but not really any longitudinal research looking at caffeine exclusively. There have been some studies looking at pre-workout formulations that include caffeine, but you know, we know that caffeine improves performance acutely. And strangely, there haven't been any longitudinal studies looking to see whether that actually does anything for gains in the long term. So yeah, just just that whole idea of, you know, we found this thing that acutely improves performance or acutely improves recovery. Therefore, it's necessarily going to lead to better training outcomes. Uh, I would just say slow your roll there, buddy, because that whole concept if anything works in reverse for things that improve recovery, um, kind of on average based on what's been studied so far, and has a has a spotty and inconsistent track record for things that improve acute performance as well. Yeah, and another thing to keep in mind, uh, in our mass internal review this month, we kind of had a little chat about this, but the, the general question of how close to failure do you need to get to really effectively promote hypertrophy and when you consider like you know a lot of these studies they're showing like oh you can increase your maximum number of reps from 11 and a half to 13 with a supplement it's like well if you're going for hypertrophy you probably only need to do 10 and then just rack it so like that to me if you're going down the hypertrophy route for some of these supplements i think i think that aspect really makes you question if we don't even need to go to, to failure to induce hypertrophy, why w- would it really be important for us to extend our failure window by a rep and a half? Yeah, and, and I think I think in general, my speculation kind of mirrors yours. Um, like what you were just talking about, like maybe sodium bicarbonate improves performance, but very well could just mean that you have to do more to achieve the same effect. I kind of think that's how a lot of these things are going to work out. I think caffeine might be an exception because it seems to mostly work by reducing perceptions of fatigue. So maybe it just lets people actually push harder, but isn't actually doing anything mechanistically to affect um, like metabolic fatigue or something like that, even though it does have some 
effects on like glycogen and carbohydrate utilization and whatnot. So who knows? Maybe maybe that would be the same story as well. But yeah, I, I kind of think that with things like citrulline, malate, sodium bicarbonate, beta alanine, all of those things, they're essentially helping to like theoretically reduce some of the metabolic stress your muscles experience. And so I kind of conceptualize hypertrophy as kind of one part mechanical tension and one part metabolic stress. Or, I mean, if it was like a cocktail recipe, maybe it's like three parts mechanical tension to one part metabolic stress in terms of like what's actually driving it. I don't really know, but let's just say that those are the two biggest variables. Um, I think that, you know, if it's just about using the same load and being able to do more reps before failure, I kind of think mechanical tension is going to be similar regardless. And then if the second aspect is metabolic stress, total reps performed is going to be a proxy for metabolic stress, but not necessarily if you're changing inputs that also affect metabolic stress. So, you know, let's say theoretically the optimal number of reps for hypertrophy uh, is three shy of failure. If three, if three shy of failure occurs at 10 reps or 12 reps, it, you know, you would be reaching the same metabolic point by but just doing more work in the process. So yeah, I, I'm kind of with you. I don't I don't necessarily know that we should assume that it would improve results in the first place. Yeah, it's 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 interesting. I mean, I, I really do if you uh have the keys to an exercise science lab out there, um these are very, very feasible studies that could be done. Uh that would be really cool. I mean, you could fund a caffeine muscle adaptation study with twenty dollars probably. Yeah, if you that, if you already had, that's the one I really want to see. Yeah, I'd love to see somebody just say, "Hey, caffeine or placebo?" You know, before training for X number of weeks. Let's see if this really pans out. Um, one other thing, uh, if, if you are going to go that sodium bicarbonate route, because like I said, it, it it will acutely enhance performance uh, for for certain sprint type activities. It's something I've mentioned on the show before. Um, you want to keep an eye out for the GI issues that people report with sodium bicarbonate. If you go a little too high with the dose, it, it can be pretty unpleasant. There was a study very recently within the last couple months that was called the effects of a novel bicarbonate loading protocol on serum bicarbonate concentration, a randomized controlled trial. And what they do uh, within that paper is they lay out a way to dose sodium bicarbonate in a way that was shown to be uh, really effective in terms of minimizing the GI distress, but still allowing you to achieve a really high level of, of blood bicarbonate. So um, you can look into that. Basically, what they did is they started this dosing protocol 19 and a half hours before the test and just kind of incrementally did these four increasing dosages uh, with, you know, a as the, uh, the testing time approach. So they did like 110 milligrams per kilogram, 130, 160, and 200 every few hours or so. Uh, so that's something you might want to look into if you go that route. And additionally, uh, I mentioned that uh, bicarbonate is, is our, pri our primary extracellular buffer, uh, but beta alanine supplementation increases muscle carnosine levels, and carnosine is our main intracellular buffer, buffer uh, for muscle. So there are some studies showing that co combining um, sodium bicarbonate with beta alanine might be a little bit more effective than one or the other alone. Um, 
but you do run into an uh, you, you run into a situation there where the returns are fairly diminishing um and you know you put yourself in this position where you're taking a bicarbonate dose or a beta alanine dose like every few hours because beta alanine you're going to want to split it into at least three or four doses a day um sodium bicarbonate if you want to avoid those gi issues you're going to do the same the timing of those doses aren't potentially going to be similar but maybe not exactly so it does become a very cumbersome way to get a small increase in your acute performance so that information's out there but i don't know if i'd spend a whole lot of time or effort stressing about it yeah i mean i could definitely see it being useful for like competition purposes sure so you know probably not for like power lifters or weight lifters but if you're a strongman athlete and there's going to be several like reps to failure events or, you know, like a, like a loading event where you're probably going to be moving for 30 to 60 seconds, then maybe using some of this stuff to acutely improve performance in a context like that would be quite beneficial because at that point you're not inter- you're not worried about the training adaptations you get from the competition. You're just trying to perform as well as possible on day of. Yeah. Um, so like, Strongmen or like CrossFitters using sodium bicarbonate, beta alanine, um, stuff like that before an actual competition, you know, probably beneficial, maybe a little cumbersome, but competing itself is a little cumbersome. So who knows? Maybe the juice would be worth the squeeze. But I I very much agree that just for day-to-day training purposes, um, probably not worth it for most people. I agree. All right. So... Another question for Greg here. This is from Joanna Eck. In a previous episode, you discussed using chains and bands to alter the resistance curve and its effects as it pertains to training for strength. I was wondering what your take is when it comes to using chains or bands when the goal is hypertrophy. Yeah, so that's a good question. And that is something that I didn't really address uh, in answering the previous question. Um One thing I will note is that if you are interested in previous questions we've tackled on the podcast, you can go to strongerbyscience.com slash QA, and there's a like linked archive page of all of the questions that we have previously covered. Um, But anyway, so yeah, someone previously asked about uh, accommodating resistance and its effects on strength gains. Um, So I, I hemmed and hauled about that for probably entirely too long. But I didn't address hypertrophy. One of the reasons I didn't is that uh, that is not what the research is interested in. Um, It is a little frustrating to me because, like, if you're doing a longitudinal training study, that's a pain in the ass. It's a lot of work. In my opinion, like, I'm not someone who... I'm not someone who, who will just say, like, take every measure conceivable... So you can slice it up and get four papers out of it or, you know, just have a lot of different variables you can try to p-hack. But for a longitudinal training study, it's such a pain in the ass. Like major chronic uh, measures that that may actually matter to people, I say take them all. And so, you know, if if your lab has like an ultrasound where you can measure changes in muscle size, if you're doing a strength study, just measure muscle size as well. It may or may not differ between groups, but you're already doing the work. Get that measure. If you don't have an ultrasound, but you have a DEXA, get leg lean mass. It's not as good, but at least it's something. If you don't have either, 
take uh take like limb circumferences and skin fold thicknesses like there's regression equations you can use to kind of predict changes in cross-sectional area not as good as either dexa or ultrasound assessments but you know again at least it's something um but anyway <laughs> a lot of studies don't do that um and specifically a lot of the studies on accommodating resistance uh using bands and chains just they assess strength outcomes and don't even attempt to assess hypertrophy outcomes. So I didn't really say anything about it then, um, just because there's not direct research to fall back on. But uh, the question was asked, and so speculate I will. So um, first things first, kind of the whole the whole theory behind accommodating resistance and why you might want to use it in the first place is that it helps match up the resistance curve with your strength curve. And so by that, I mean that in most of the exercises you do, you're weaker at the bottom and stronger at the top. That, that's not true for some exercises, like let's say pull-ups, but for things like you know squats, um, generally deadlifts, even though some conventional pullers are weaker at the top, uh, bench press, shoulder press, uh, pretty much anything in like the squatting and pressing categories, at least, um, most people are going to be quite a bit stronger at the top of the rep than at the bottom. And so when you attach chains or bands to the bar, it helps match up the resistance curve with your strength curve. Instead of moving 400 pounds through an entire range of motion, where at the weakest point you can lift 400 pounds and at the strongest point you can lift 500 pounds, you can put you know 80 pounds of band tension on the bar with none at the bottom, so that at the bottom it's 400 pounds, it's still very challenging. At the top, it's 480, which is much more similar to the 500 pounds of force you would be capable of producing. Um, so that's kind of what accommodating resistance does for you. And so the question is, could that help with hypertrophy? And I think in general, just to, to tip my hand a little bit, I think as long as you're smart about it, the effect one would at least assume would either be neutral or positive. Um, I do think if you apply it poorly, it could have a negative effect. So, um, to start with, we, there's reasonably decent evidence that one of the things that matters for hypertrophy is exposing muscles to load through a stretched position. So if you look at research on full range of motion versus partial range of motion, um, even if you equate to like a range of motion specific one rep max, people tend to grow more when they train through a full range of motion. And one of the um, speculated reasons why is that it's not just tension on the muscle that matters, it's tension, like tension in a stretch position kind of plays a disproportionate effect. So, you know, if you put the same amount of effort into training full squats and half squats, generally your quads are going to grow more doing full squats because you are load, loading your quads through a somewhat stretched position. Um, and so I think one way that you could kind of shoot yourself in the foot using accommodating resistance is if you used way too much of it. So, you know, if, if you put so much band tension on the bar or so much chain weight on the bar that the lockout becomes a limiting factor, then essentially what you're doing at, at that point is limiting the load you can place on yourself when your muscles are in a stretch position. So, you know, let's say 
a, a good training weight if you're just doing free weight bench press is 200 pounds. Uh, if you put, and, and let's say you can barely, just barely lock out 300 pounds if you were doing like a four board press. If you put uh, like 300 pounds of chain weight on the bar or something ridiculous like that, um, then you know, you'd essentially not be able to put any straight weight on the bar. So you want to be challenging yourself at the bottom end of the bench press. And it would be super hard at the top. Uh, and, you know, you essentially wouldn't be exposing your pecs, triceps, front delts to substantial loading in the stretch position. And yeah, I think that that could probably do more harm than good when it comes to hypertrophy. That is obviously a somewhat ridiculous scenario. The people I see using accommodating resistance these days aren't that dumb about it. But I like, and this could just be because I'm old and I've been lifting for a long time. I remember when I got into it during like the heyday of West Side, people heard Louis say, oh, lots of band tension is good. And they took that to, you know, level a million and would just put like hundreds and hundreds of pounds of band tension on the bar. And so like, you know, they, they would effectively not be moving any weight at the bottom of a bench press or bottom of a squat, and then would be straining to lock out like the last two inches, which is dumb. Uh, I don't think many people do that anymore, but if that is something you do, eh, I don't think that's that good for hypertrophy. Um, so now let's address kind of a more normal use scenario. Um, so let's say you do, you are using appropriate accommodating resistance. Uh, the movement is similarly challenging throughout, or maybe still slightly more challenging at the bottom, um, but it's not just stupid easy at lockout. That's kind of what you're aiming for with accommodating resistance. I think at that point, one could make an argument if you think uh, tension through a stretch position is kind of the more important thing, that it wouldn't really do anything good or bad for hypertrophy. It would be just as good as training with straight weight and there is some reason to believe that that would be the case. So there aren't that many studies comparing um, isotonic resistance training, which is, you know, the type most people do most of the time, squats, deadlifts, curls, etc., with uh, isokinetic resistance training, which is essentially using machines to accomplish what you're trying to do with bands and chains. Um, you can tell a machine, uh, you know, I want to extend my knee at 30 degrees per second, you kick out as hard as possible, and it gives you the amount of resistance required to not be able to exceed 30 degrees per second of knee extension torque. Um, so, you know, at the start, maybe it's not giving you quite as much resistance. As you're able to kick harder, it gives you more. Uh, you're a little bit weaker right at full knee extension, so it gives you a little bit less there. But it essentially perfectly matches resistance to uh, torque output. Um, and so th that's kind of doing exactly what you want bands and chains to do. And there aren't that many studies comparing isotonic and isokinetic resistance training um, and their effects on hypertrophy. But the stuff that's out there kind of suggests that isokinetic resistance training doesn't improve hypertrophy results relative to isotonic training, which kind of makes me think that uh, accommodating resistance probably won't positively affect hypertrophy either. Probably not negatively affect it, but, you know, kind of giving you the same overall results. 
one could make the case that it would be beneficial. So another potential mechanism, um, or at least like proxy measure associated with hypertrophy is level of muscle deoxygenation. So there was a study um, that I wrote about in mass a couple years ago. Uh, lead author was Goto, and it was looking at like full range of motion versus constant tension, partial range of motion, triceps extensions. And so one group was training from zero degrees of elbow flexion to 120. So that's pretty full range of motion. The other group I want to say was keeping elbow flexion between 90 degrees and 30 degrees. So not going down quite all the way and also not locking out all the way. Um, And they found that the partial range of motion group experienced more triceps hypertrophy. And also uh, within both groups and when pooling both of the groups as well, they found that the total amount of muscle deoxygenation experienced during the training session was positively associated with the amount of hypertrophy that took place. Um, And so if, you know, if that is a decent proxy for hypertrophy, or at least something contributing to hypertrophy, one could then potentially make the case that accommodating resistance would be possibly beneficial. Because essentially, like, you're never fully relaxing your prime movers when you're, you know, benching, squatting, whatever. But near the top, you can kind of relax a little bit. You don't have to put that much effort into it. Um, And so maybe that's, you know, giving a chance for uh, more oxygen to get into those muscles, clear some of the waste products out. And, you know, maybe constant tension is like a super good thing for hypertrophy. Um, And so with accommodating resistance, it would keep more tension on the muscles through a longer range of motion. Um, I still think that if you're performing reps as a power lifter would with like a clear distinction between uh, the end of one concentric and the start of the next eccentric where, you know, you're standing at the top of a squat for like two seconds to catch your breath before you do the next rep. I still kind of think that that would um, negate any of the benefits of like constant tension type benefits that you may be able to get from accommodating resistance. But if you're doing like bodybuilder style reps, if one assumes bodybuilder style reps is kind of more of a constant tension approach, then I could see, um, I could see accommodating resistance possibly making that even a little bit more effective because you're making the muscles work harder through a longer range of motion, which may lead to maybe more muscle deoxygenation and maybe more hypertrophy. Um, like I said, since the isotonic versus isokinetic research does kind of speak to that directly. I don't like, I would prioritize that over my mechanistic speculation about muscle deoxygenation. So I kind of think that it wouldn't necessarily improve hypertrophy either, but also wouldn't hinder it. Um, But I am open to the idea that it could be beneficial. So uh, just to wrap this up, if you're stupid about accommodating resistance and put way too much band tension or way too many chains on the bar, I could see it being a negative, um, but if you apply it smartly, uh, I think it's going to be neutral to positive. I kind of think neutral, but um, I'm certainly open to the idea of it being beneficial, especially if you're doing like constant tension style reps. All right. Uh, So a while back, Eric discussed the groundbreaking documentary, The Game Changers. 
uh, and surprisingly wasn't that big of a fan of it. Um, so let's see. He had a question. We've got two questions. So one. Oh, the, one, the, the name of the first asker is apologies in advance. Correct. Yeah. Okay. I get it. I, I thought that that was like a heading you had. Yeah. Okay. So we have two questions about the groundbreaking documentary, The Game Changers. Uh, the first is from someone whose parents very unfortunately named him or her uh, apologies in advance. This person writes, I regret to inform you that the Game Changers guy is back destroying the dude Rogan brought on to represent the other side. They walk through a lot of the topics that come up frequently on the podcast, so it could so you could discuss the cringiest nonsense they pass off as the quote scientific consensus. That could be awesome. Uh, the other question is from Roy Jenks. Ron. Uh, Ron. Yeah. Sorry, I can't read. Ron Jenks. Uh, so Ron says slash asks, I watched the Game Changers movie recently and was disappointed to find that much of what Eric said about the movie was false. Woo, buddy. Shots fired. Okay. Ron continues fucking eviscerating Eric. The movie... <laughs> <laughs> the movie never made the claim that eating animal products makes you worse at fighting, and it never had any, and it never had, never said anything about comparing the muscularity of cows to humans. I even went into the movie expecting to hear that claim being made, and it just wasn't there. God, what a fucking snake, Eric! Just making shit up. No, it gets it gets worse. He continues. Did you just misremember the details of the film, or did you intentionally misrepresent it? My bet's on number two. After listening to your review and then watching the movie, it seems like you argued against what you wanted the movie to be instead of what it really was. That makes me wary of trusting your other reviews. First of all, how dare you question... What, what do you have to say for yourself? My other reviews, I have a huge library of film reviews. <laughs> you can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> okay, so... Uh, before I begin, I want to apologize to apologies in advance. Um, this documentary has taken so much more of my life than it deserves. And I cannot... Which is to say the length of the documentary. Yeah, and then some. <laughs> okay, so I just can't suffer through more of this. But but more importantly, it just doesn't matter. Okay, now I, I want to be very clear. I'm not saying that I'm like above it or too good to look into it. What I'm saying is, I don't know how much time I have on this earth. And in the time I have, I want to do things that I either enjoy or things that bring value. I would hate doing this and it would not bring, bring value to anyone at all. Okay. So that's well, why... I, it may have brought value if you accurately represented it the first time. <laughs> that, that is true. So I don't really have an interest in going through the debate about the movie um, because I just, to me, they're arguing over these things. But if you want to have an impact on the science and how it's interpreted, we have systems in place by which you can participate in the scientific process. Usually when this kind of thing happens and you have the, the big throw down debate it's usually just two people wrestling over a set of goalposts and trying to shift it and shift it and shift it and shift it so 
I really don't want to go through some kind of point by point thing defending the film because I don't think that's particularly instructive because I already made my opinions on the merits and the applications of vegan diets very clear, you know, so going through this kind of point by point thing, aside from just being a massive time suck and a thing that I would absolutely hate doing and not have any joy from, it just when I want to make up my opinion on the uses and applications of vegan diets, I go into the research literature and I procure that and I read about it. And that's where I get my information. I mean, it wasn't the person that Joe brought on to represent the scientific consensus or like the, the omnivore position, Chris Kresser. Yes. Do you know about that guy? I don't. He's a, so he's not as much of a kook as like, Mercola or someone like that, but uh, he's a kook. It's like pretty fringe stuff, right? Yeah, he's he's kind of like not like not like naturopath, but uh, I don't know, one of those like quote unquote holistic medicine guys, where it's not saying you should do holistic medicine as in exercise regularly and eat a well rounded diet, like you know. You should do, I think, I think his current thing is like paleo, Mm -hmm. um, but like a super strict version of it, which should also be supplemented with like a shit ton of the supplements that he sells. Um, I haven't checked in on this guy in years, so who knows? Maybe he's completely cleaned up his act, but the last time I checked in on him was three or four years ago. And like I said, he wasn't like a full on like Mercola level nutter, but he was, uh, he was he was certainly outside the scientific consensus yeah. on many things. Yeah, so like between, you know, the description you gave and a person who trains people self-defense for a living, I don't want to dive into that to make my takeaways on <laughs> on the merits of a vegan diet. I'd rather go into the research literature where, you know, one of the things that drove me nuts about the movie is they do all these little experiments that an experiment with three people in three conditions is not helpful. And there's absolutely no detail about the methodology. Why wouldn't I go into a study with 300 people, an extremely detailed methodology, and a clinical trial pre-registration that I can hold them accountable to? Like, this is just such a not helpful thing from my perspective. But I don't want to completely cop out. So I do want to give my the, <laughs> the viewpoints I still have based on the whole thing that we call the scientific method, Okay. Any diet spanning from vegan to carnivore could suck. Vegetables and fruits are awesome, as are many grain products. Animal proteins tend to have high quality scores depending, you know, no matter which scoring system you prefer. There's a paper by Hoffman and Falvo in 2004 that talks about all the different ways to assess protein quality. Animal products tend to be more favorable for human ingestion in terms of their quality score. You can absolutely, this is important. You can absolutely maximize your potential and optimize your gains on a vegan diet. 100%. It would require a little bit of adjustment, but it's totally doable. If a person on a well-constructed omnivorous diet switches to a well-constructed vegan diet, it's not going to be a game changer, in quotes. They won't see any unfavorable effects, but they're not going to be like, wow, I can't believe I used to eat four ounces of chicken breast a day and now I eat lentils instead. If the whole rest of the diet stays the same, it's going to have virtually no impact on them whatsoever. 
Now, if you want a point-by-point review of the film itself, Lane Norton's got an article on it. So does Menno Henselman's. I haven't read them all in detail because, again, I don't really care that much, but I'm sure they did a fine job with it. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If you want commentary on the Joe Rogan debate, uh, there was a Twitter thread that Chris Masterjohn made. I don't really know anything about Chris. I don't know much about his work. This is not an unequivocal endorsement, but if you want some kind of analysis of the debate, that's a place you can find it. Chris is legit. I, I would co-sign yeah. for him. So yeah, I, I briefly, scan, I didn't just like say, oh, hey, here's, I scanned it. It looked fine, um, but I don't want to suggest that like everything in it is 100% my view. Um, so, okay, now let's move on to Ron. Um, so first of all, the Game Changer segment came right after we said that Chase Young should be on the Heisman watch for making the finals, uh, the, the finalist list, and he did. So that's already one point for our credibility. That's an accurate prediction that happened ahead of time as we led into that segment on Game Changers. I think that's Nostradamus-level stuff. Yeah, that was huge. Okay, and second of all, I gave the, the damn movie two bags of popcorn out of five. That is arguably two more than it deserved, okay? So the idea that I just like came to totally tear this thing apart is crazy. Okay, so he mentioned the thing about comparing the muscularity of cows and humans. So when we went into that segment, I made it very clear. This is not a point-by-point kind of thing. This is not me looking at verbatim quotes. This is my general sense of the film and some of the shortcomings that that jumped out to me, okay? I think I made that very clear, but that was the, the premise. It wasn't like, hey, I'm going to read you quotes from the film and then dissect them with, with publications. Okay, so what I said was, you know, they in the movie said cows have more muscle than humans, but cows don't eat meat. How do you explain that? Now, my intention was not to suggest that is a verbatim quote from the film. So if you look for it in the film, Ron, you are correct. It ain't in there. What I was trying to do is give the general sense of a pretty big logical fallacy that they that they tended to imply in a couple circumstances. Okay, so one of the, the actual quotes from the film. I think one of the biggest misconceptions in sports nutrition is that we have to have animal protein, in particular meat, to get big and strong and perform at a high level. That's just clearly not true. All that protein you get when you eat a steak or a hamburger, where did it come from? It came from the plants that the cow ate. Okay, so I didn't intend to suggest that the only reason cows have more muscle than humans is because they eat plants. That's a ridiculous thing to say. They are an entirely different species. Now, my interpretation of that statement, and Greg, you can be the impartial, impartial judge here. I thought you could take that statement they said and, and interpret it as, hey, cow seems to, cows seem to get big and strong from plants. Why can't you? You should be able to get big and strong by eating what the cow eats without eating the cow. Do you think that's reasonably fair? Yeah, I, think, I do think that that is a fair interpretation. So that's my interpretation. You know, Unlike every person associated with that film, I'm comfortable with the idea of being wrong on this. My mortgage doesn't depend on it. They all have shit to sell you. I don't. Okay, so maybe my interpretation's wrong, but that was what I got from it. You should be able to get, you should be able to get big and strong. Well, I mean, before someone like fact checks you on that, you do have things to sell, but it's not. It's not. It's not based subs- on. It's not specifically related to this concept. Exactly. I'm not you, selling you. Don't have you, a like thirty billion dollar stake in a pea protein company. Yeah, I'm not selling you vegan diets, and I'm not selling you that you shouldn't be on a vegan diet. I just told you a vegan diet can be absolutely exceptional if you design it well. 
Okay, so I think that those are two two very fair uh, implications from from that statement, it, or at least the second one. You should be able to get big and strong by eating what the cow eats without eating the cow. I think that's extremely fair. That logic is not great, okay? Because um, if you try to test, if you do a little bit of stress testing on that logic, it completely implodes. <laughs> Okay, so we have food chains and food webs. They're a thing. So what if you apply that argument to a carnivore? You know, lions eat antelopes for protein. But where does the antelope get its protein? From plants. That doesn't mean the lion can just eat what the antelope eats and be fine and get big and strong. Yeah. That's not how this stuff works. They're different species that utilize nutrients differently. Take it a step further. People, people think that cows need to obtain calories from food. But here's the question. All that energy stored in the plant that the cow ate, where'd that come from? It came from the sun. <laughs> so just become a breatharian, do photosynthesis. This logic is bad. And that was my general take on, on the, the film as a whole, is there were many instances of this stuff where they would say this soundbite and you'd be like, dude, think about the logic that you're pinning this argument on. It's not strong logic. So then they said, I was surprised to learn that all protein originates in plants. Cows, pigs, and chickens, it turns out, are just the middlemen. That is not how the term middleman works. You know what I mean? Like, it completely ignores differences in amino acid profiles between animal proteins and plant proteins. Yeah, like middleman implies, you know, two kilos of cocaine are offloaded uh, from a ship that surreptitiously pulled up in a, you know, port of Miami. That gets handed off to the guy taking the shipment. That gets handed off to the local drug guy. That gets handed off to street dealers. Those people between the cocaine landing in America and you buying it are middlemen, but they are passing along, if the, ch if the chain is good, the same cocaine product. Now, maybe someone cuts it down with some shit in the middle steps, and that's bad. And I want to know anything about that because I have never partaken in the gateway drug marijuana. Um, <laughs> but that's what a middleman does. Like it passes along the exact same product. Uh, but sunlight is not the same as protein in plants is not the same as protein in animals. Like basically re re reiterating what you're saying. That's not what a middleman is. Yeah. I mean, so that would be like me saying like, hey, I just bought some fresh steel. Technically, it passed through a middleman. Toyota bent that thing and it turned it into a car. But but my steel came in today. It's like, no, that's not a, ma a middleman. That's a manufacturer. The, yeah. <laughs> the cow is eating plants, turning it into different stuff, and then you're eating the cow. So that, that was my premise there. Again, I, I was very clear about what were real quotes and what weren't this time around. The stuff about lions eating antelopes, that's not a quote. That's me testing the logic in a different circumstance. Same thing about cows doing photosynthesis. That's not a quote, but the general idea here is there's a lot of implications in the movie that were based on re really rough logic. You got to be able to infer things when implications are made. Like if your significant other comes home and says, you know, for once I'd love to come home and not see a sink full of dishes. That's not rhetorical. Your significant other wants you to wash your dishes, man. Like, you got to be able to read between the lines on this stuff. Yeah, like, I washed dishes one time three months ago is not, that's not a, oh, fucking got him. Owned you <laughs> yeah. with facts and logic. You want me to do it once? I did it once. Like, exactly. Th th that's not how you win that argument. That's going to go very poorly for you. Th you're responding to the 
the text of what was said rather than the meaning of what was said. Exactly. So, so that was the quote about cows. Now, I know what you're thinking, Greg. Eric, you charlatan, you misrepresented the film and you should be ashamed. Well, I've got one that's a little bit more on the nose. The same general premise, okay? Here's a direct quote from the film. This whole fantasy that we need to eat meat to get our protein, it's actually BS. I mean, look at a gorilla. A gorilla will F you up in two seconds. Yeah. You can swear on the podcast, Eric. I don't like to. A gorilla will F you up in two seconds. Yeah? What does a gorilla eat? Are you kidding me? Right, yeah. These are different species that utilize nutrients from their diet entirely differently. These are the things I'm talking about in the film where they're saying, I don't know, cows get their protein from, from grass. Why don't you? Gorillas seem strong. They don't eat a lot of meat. This is just absolutely absurd logic. That's what I was responding to, and I'm totally correct. <laughs> okay. God, you're uh I feel like you're going in pretty hard on Ron, specifically. He, he says I've intentionally misrepresented this stuff. I, I, I see why you corrected me saying it was Roy. You just wanted to... No, I'm going in on Ron. You just wanted to hammer on Ron. Listen up, Ron. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, now... There, there goes another listener. <laughs> <laughs> okay oh man well he already checked out he's not listening to this he said he doesn't trust any of my film reviews anymore okay so another thing though in the interest of, of transparency here by the way ron we still love you i'm just joking okay so uh we we also he, he was like hey they didn't say that eating meat makes you bad at fighting so fighting was like the real premise for this whole thing here okay so the opening scene the narrator says, hey, I teach people how to fight or, or do self-defense for a living. Um, and then we transition to some kung fu scenes about Bruce Lee. And, and he said, you know, that Bruce Lee, and, and I think the narrator as well, got like, you know, kind of attacked or, or beat up when they were young. And it led to a quest for knowledge about the ability to fight. This is like the jumping off point for the documentary. It, it wouldn't be hard to infer that they're saying like, oh, there's some kind of relationship here between ability to fight and dietary inputs. And obviously the film is about vegan diets. Um, then he says the whole thing that got him going on vegan stuff was learning that gladiators who were, you know, historically known for fighting were largely vegetarian based on the archeological evidence that they were talking about. And he says, it totally blew my mind. The gladiators were highly prized fighters who got the most advanced training and medical care in the Roman empire to think that, the original professional fighters ate mainly plants went against everything I'd been taught about nutrition. So then this film had a bunch of different anecdotes. The first one we look at is Conor McGregor versus Nate Diaz, and they framed it accordingly. They, th this is, uh, these are quotes. McGregor was a big meat eater. That was like one of the things they said when they introduced him. With Diaz, they said, Diaz was on a plant-based diet. And then they show Diaz shadow boxing, and he looks in the camera and says, eat your vegetables. The idea that I'm drawing some kind of link here, it should be pretty clear. Yeah, that's pretty on the nose. So the movie didn't shift away from this sequence of different applications of fighting until nine minutes in. The next time we see McGregor is at the 20 minute mark, approximately. He's covered in blood and losing a fight, tapping out to a rear naked choke. And then they have a, a, a thing of him that it seems like it's a post-fight press conference or something along a post-fight interview, uh, you know, maybe days later, I don't know. And he says, nine days out from the fight, I started eating two steaks a day, and it just came back to bite me on the ass, you know? And then the narrator says, this was the greatest upset in UFC history, 
And it turned out Nate wasn't the only plant-based fighter out there. This is making a very clear implication that eating two steaks a day was part of the circumstances that led to a huge fight upset. I mean, I, I think that's pretty fair, right, Greg? Yeah, I, I think that's quite fair. Also worth noting, Nate Diaz is pescatarian, but what are details? Yeah. And then here's another one just for fun. I don't want to dwell on this too much. Here's a quote, a direct quote from the movie. You're not going to believe me, but it's in there. The more meat men eat, the more quickly they lose their manly manhood. So that's why <laughs> I came back after watching this and I was like, okay, I'm not going to do a point by point. What literature am I going to review, Greg? To fact check the statement, the more meat that men eat, the more quickly they lose their manly manhood. What journal am I going to? I don't know. Like, it just sounds like a, a thread topic on like a pro-vegan incel forum. <laughs> Is that a thing? I don't know. It has to be. Probably. Okay. So It's the internet. Yeah. And, and I mean, like I said, the idea that I would intentionally misrepresent this stuff, it's crazy. The virgin omnivore versus the Chad vegan. <laughs> No, but like, okay, so the idea that I would misrepresent this, like like we said, the executive producers have at least tens of millions tied up in plant-based food investments. Meanwhile, the, the last paper I published in a journal was, the title was Impact of Resistance Training Program Configuration on Circulating Brain-Derived Neurotrophic Factor Response. In that paper, I listed a conflict of interest that I'm a writer and online coach in the fitness industry. How are they related? How would I possibly monetize that? I don't know, but I like to be transparent. Excessively so. It was probably stupid to include that. Who cares? But the idea that it's like, I'm the one who's got an axe to grind that's misrepresenting stuff. And these guys got like, what, 40 million tied up in vegan companies? It's a lot. Give me a break, man. Okay. And all the experts, I, I looked for conflicts of interest disclosures, like in the credits and stuff. I did Maybe they're in there. I didn't see them and I intentionally look for them. So... I could be wrong. Maybe someone found some conflict of interest disclosures, but every person they interviewed there, okay, that's not literal. Many of the people they interviewed there, a percentage of their income comes directly from things that are plant-based, pro-vegan books, products, whatever the case may be. Very conflicted. Okay. So do you, Greg, you're the judge. Who wins, me versus Ron? Uh, you know, I think that... I think it's one one, and we need a rubber match. So I, we bring I, on? I definitely think you run you won this round, <laughs> but uh, we we need we need a rumble in the jungle to to decide this. Okay, we're gonna get we're gonna get our people on that. Bring them on the show head to head. You think? <laughs> oh man, yeah, no. j that's exactly what the fitness industry needs. Just oh yeah, another debate. They always are so so useful. Yeah, we need another debate and then we need somebody to do an analysis of our debate and get that published and it'll be sweet. Dude, so going back to the Rogan thing, I saw that that, that uh, discussion had occurred. I never clicked on it because I don't care. But like I just did when you mentioned it because it's linked here in our in our outline. It's four hours long. <laughs> Wasn't the documentary like two hours I think it was under two, if memory serves. Jesus Christ. Yeah. So that that's what I mean, where I'm just like, dude, I don't want to spend... I don't want to dive into like eight hours of the Game Changer cinematic universe. 
you know yeah that's, just, that, that's half a work day i know i'd feel real i would feel guilty if i spent my work time doing that yeah that's that would not be a good use of time yeah okay so i ron i was just kidding with the animosity we're cool um i hope you still listen it sounds like there's probably a low likelihood but in any case i do appreciate your question because you know whenever we potentially get something wrong we'd love to have people bring it to our attention um when i saw that comment i was like oh god I actually went back and watched a huge portion of the movie. Like, I, like I was actually like pretty concerned. I was like, dude, I'm, did I? Because here's the thing about bias. You know, I started that segment by saying clearly, here's my bias. I'm an omnivore. Um, but the thing about bias is that in many cases, it's unintentional. Right. Yeah. So I actually did have like my heart kind of skipped a beat because like I t- like I said, I take that stuff really seriously. And I was like, dude, did I like just completely mishear everything in the documentary. And I was like pretty concerned about it. Then I went back and I was like, no, that's, that's pretty much what they're getting at. Yeah. So, um, but in any case, you know, if you're listening and you're like, Ooh, I think they missed something or or got something wrong. You know, we're happy to, to, to address it and kind of put all the facts out on the table. So there's a good chance you might be listening to this and and still conclude like, no, Eric, I think you overinterpreted some of those implications and you'd be well within your right to conclude that. But, I'm still kind of standing by the way I interpreted it, if that makes sense. Sounds fair to me. Okay, so I think we effectively answered that question. So moving on, we've got a brand new feature on the podcast, which is a sponsored Q&A question. So this is a really big thing for us, our first ever sponsored question. So the next question is going to be for Greg. It's sponsored by the North American Beef, Egg, and Dairy Coalition. So uh, be sure to beef up your lunch with some scrambled eggs and a nice milk steak. Okay, if you want to learn more about how you can support the North American Beef, Egg, and Dairy Coalition, be sure to ask your butcher or your dairy farmer today. This question is from Carrara. I wonder if low VO2 max slash aerobic conditioning can hinder progress in a strength training program. I find myself struggling to improve my lifts for a long time now, and my VO2 max is quite low, around 25, despite regular training. Also, uh, just something to keep in mind, uh, the person asking the question does have mild asthma. Okay, so first thing I'm going to say is uh, thank you to our sponsor for this question, the North American Beef, Egg, and Dairy Coalition. Um, we we thank you for helping fund us to do completely non-biased reviews of vegan documentaries. So uh, to start with reviewing uh, Carrara's question, uh, first off, if you have mild asthma, as always with any medical condition, first things first, talk to your doctor. Um, your doctor will probably say to exercise, but your doctor probably knows more about exercise and asthma than I do. So, you know, before you undertake a particular training program, just check with your doctor, um, make sure it's okay. And if there are any things you need to be aware of, your doctor should know that stuff better than I would. Now moving on to the meat of the question, uh, can a low VO2 max or just very poor aerobic conditioning hinder progress in a strength training program? I think in general, yes, but not super frequently. Um, And I think one of the situations where it could is one like Carrara's. So she mentions her VO2 max is around 25. I'm going to assume that's mLs per kg per minute. Um, And that is, just to put it in context, like quite a low VO2 max. 
um, for completely sedentary, untrained females. I think VO2 max on average is like 35-ish, and for males it's around 40. Um, and then for for people who are trained in essentially anything, even anaerobic sports, um, just because you're having to exercise, like do some form of exercise for your sport, you tend to see average VO2s 45, 50 plus. Uh, and then for sports with a heavy aerobic component, it's going to be quite a bit higher than that. For for elite endurance athletes, if you're not north of 70, you're not in the game. Um, and the highest VO2s ever recorded tend to be in cross-country skiers, and they can be 90 plus. Yeah, um, those guys are crazy. Which is, yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Um, so just, just to kind of put some context on this, and I want to say, um, oh man, I learned this in class, and I may get the number slightly off, but I want to say the VO2 max number where they say like at this point your aerobic fitness is so bad that you're going to have enormous issues with activities of daily living and may need like help just with day-to-day stuff is like 12 and a half give or take i don't recall it's pretty low um but anyway so just to contextualize that number of 25 it's not you know it's not like catastrophically can't manage activities of daily living bad but it is like a good solid 10 mls below like the sedentary female average and probably about half that of athletes in virtually any sport even anaerobic sports so um if you're dealing with a vo2 like below 30 like in the 25 range at that point, it it I think it's very likely that it could be limiting performance in the gym, just simply because as we've talked about on this podcast before, uh, resistance training is quite anaerobically taxing. The aerobically and anaerobically taxing. The the degree to which that is true depends largely on how strong you are and how large of loads you're lifting, because um, it's going to depend on work rate. And so work, it's going to have a component of both how far you're moving, the, the resistance that you are, the time frame you're doing it in, but then also just the sheer amount of weight you're lifting. So, you know, if you're squatting uh, 600 pounds for 10 reps, that is three times as energy uh, intensive as squatting 200 pounds for 10 reps. Um, so it, it is going to be tougher for stronger people. But even like just general compound lower body exercises, even if you're not particularly strong, just doing normal training sets is probably going to be enough to be quite taxing and exhausting with your aerobic system, possibly limiting performance if your VO2 is like 25. Um, So in this particular case, if someone has a very, very low VO2, I do think it is quite likely that um, that such poor aerobic conditioning probably is limiting your uh, ability to gain strength and and gain muscle. So what I would recommend what I would recommend in a situation like that is to do some dedicated aerobic training. Try to get that VO2 max up, um, and more so try to get like your absolute lactate threshold up. It's probably more important, but that's going to be. Um, associated with VO2 max to some degree anyways. 
Um, but yeah, just trying to get in generally better aerobic shape, doing some cardio will probably help you out. Uh, something you can do in the meantime, which I'd strongly recommend just as kind of uh, like a band-aid approach while you are improving your aerobic conditioning, is just doing more like machine training and single joint stuff. So, you know, if your aerobic conditioning is going to limit your ability to do a hard squat workout, um, it's probably going to be much less likely to limit you, you know, just getting after knee extensions and leg curls just because the total resistance you're dealing with is lower, the total work performed is lower, and therefore the stress you can place on the muscles, like the local musculature you're trying to get stronger and grow, is still going to be quite high, but the systemic metabolic challenge is going to be considerably lower. So it's going to be less of a challenge for your you know, general aerobic conditioning, which is what VO2 measures. So yeah, work on improving your cardio um, and doing single joint training for the time being, especially for lower body stuff, is what I'd probably recommend. So as I mentioned, I think there's two scenarios where um, aerobic conditioning could limit you. One is uh, a situation like Carrara's, where you just, you know, are coming into this with very poor aerobic conditioning, which is totally fine. That's trainable. You can work on it. Um, the other scenario where I think it could be a limiter, and, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, uh, is if you are quite strong, like very, very strong, which, you know, the, I like to think applies to a lot of our listenership, but realistically probably doesn't. Like if I was just putting a random number on this, like unless you're squatting, pulling six, 700 pounds, like this probably doesn't really matter to you all that much. Um, but like I mentioned, the the total amount of weight you're lifting uh, is largely going to dictate how energy intensive training is and how much um, that's going to impact both aerobic and anaerobic like challenge of the training session. Um, and, it, you know, let's say you have a typical VO2 for an anaerobic athlete, maybe in the 45 to 55 range, which is good. That's better than the typical person. Um but just like the sheer energy cost of, say, doing traditional hypertrophy training, if that traditional hypertrophy training involves like multiple sets of 10 to 12 reps with five, 600 pounds, like, dude, energy cost of that is fucking insane. Um, so I, I do think that it's not unlikely that um, really, really strong lifters could be limited by poor conditioning. Uh, and you tend to see a couple workarounds of that or, or for that. One is just kind of just kind of trying to find minimum effective dose and just roll in with that. Uh, you tend to see, in terms of like total relative training volume, you tend to see it being fairly low with new lifters, ramping up in intermediate lifters, and then kind of tapering off a little bit again in really, really advanced lifters. And so I think that may partially be a workaround for um, aerobic conditioning becoming a limiting factor for just how much work they can tolerate in a session. Another thing you tend to see is um, just longer and longer rest intervals. So like, you know, <laughs> the anaerobic challenge of say a set of 10 at 500 pounds is going to be really, really high. Uh, and maybe you used to be able to do sets of 10 with three minutes between sets and now it takes 10. Uh, as long as you're taking that time to rest, you know, you can probably get it done your workouts are going to be longer, which may or may not be doable for some people, just depending like how busy your life is, whether you have a family or not, whatever. 
Um, but you know, that, that's another workaround as well. And that's another thing I'd recommend to Carrera as well. If she, if she has time to be in the gym more, um, you know, just simply resting longer between sets will probably be helpful also. Um, so yeah, to, to just reiterate what I just said to wrap this question up, if your uh, aerobic conditioning is very poor, it can certainly, I think it can certainly limit um, strength and hypertrophy. Doing de dedicated aerobic conditioning work will probably help you out. And in the meantime, while you're bringing it up, do single joint training because you'll still be able to stress the local musculature you're trying to train with exercises that are, that are going to have a lower energy cost systemically. Um, and the other scenario where I think aerobic conditioning could limit progress is for people who are already quite strong. Um, aerobic conditioning, I think, could be beneficial or it could start becoming counterproductive in that population just because you are so highly trained. You may be a little bit more likely to um, like lose a little bit of muscle if you do any sort of cardio. Like it, it's it's a slightly more fragile state because you are you are a more well tuned machine at that point. Um, but certainly, just resting longer between sets will will probably be pretty helpful. And just doing some light cardio is probably going to be fine. Yeah, I the other day I was actually thinking about this. I used to, you know, everything I did was on a college campus. I lived near it, so I could walk into work to, in, at the beginning of the day, walk to meetings, walk home. Dude, I don't move anymore <laughs> at all. Yeah. I mean, I was thinking about this the other day. I was like, I need to start moving intentionally because otherwise, you know, days when I work from home, I, I actually do not move. It's really quite frightening. So I, I'm in, I think I'm one of the people that I would probably benefit from, from doing some structured cardio now because it is, it has gotten very bad. Oh yeah. I mean, I think at minimum, unless you have a pretty active job, everyone should go for a walk pretty much every day. Like doesn't have to be anything intense, but just get some steps in. Probably going to be good. Yeah. All right. That does it for today's Q&A episode. If you'd like one of your questions answered on a future Q&A episode, you can go to tiny.cc slash sbsqa to submit any questions you might have. As always, thanks for listening. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. Now, Greg and I are not experts in medicine or health or really anything else for that matter. So before you make any changes to your diet and exercise habits, make sure you check with a doctor or another healthcare professional. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to support it, visit strongerbyscience.com to check out the products and services that we offer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.